0: All right, everybody, welcome back to another awesome episode of the Crypto 101 podcast, where we speak to founders, CEOs, and the smartest people building up the Bitcoin blockchain and crypto industry. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, P Tokens and P Network. Uh, And if you've been listening to Crypto 101 for any amount of time, you've heard us call 2020 the year of interoperability. Over and over again, we're talking about this concept, and that's because the smartest teams in crypto are all focused on bridging the divide between the many different cryptocurrencies. So, imagine in the future, you won't have to worry about managing a million different addresses for your Bitcoin and your Ethereum and Litecoin and Tezos and EOS and all that stuff, right? Rather, you'll be able to send any crypto to any address at any time time. Well, that future is here and it's made possible by P Network's P tokens. And the ticker symbol for that is PNT. So beyond that, P tokens are able to be staked with a 42% annual yield. Wow. So that means if you stake a thousand tokens, by the end of the year, you would have earned an additional 420 tokens. I mean, that is serious business and it's a great way to be earning passive income. So if you want to learn more about the P Network, the leading protocol enabling interoperability, or how you can earn 42% annual yield on your P tokens, click the link in our show notes or go to www.p.network. Again, that's www.p as in the letter P. Dot network before we dive in to our awesome awesome guest and conversation today i want to remind you guys of two things and the first one is that if you go to crypto 101 insider.com you can join our private community here's where we have our model portfolio and all of our top picks we also have a uh, crypto 101 university uh where we have hours and hours and hours of written and video content that explains blockchain and explains cryptocurrency in a very bite-sized and easy to understand way. Uh and we have a weekly newsletter that goes out in quarterly state of crypto addresses that go out. There is just a ton of value packed into this every which way. So I want you guys first uh, to go to crypto101 insider.com today uh, if you haven't already. I also Want to remind you guys that Pizza Mind and I recently just finished a book. Uh, it took 11 months of our lives to write and we're calling it Crypto Revolution, your guide to the future of money. all right all of you good wonderful citizens of crypt nation i hope you're having a wonderful morning noon or night because wherever you are in the world pizza mind. what do we tell these folks well we tell them they're in the right
1: place but i'm not sure in 2020 anymore
0: <laughs> uh, we're, we're, all, we're all trying
1: to get back to the right place wherever that may be <laughs> but in the meantime hunker down do whatever you have to do to survive the, pr- the price on social media. of
0: yeah. the price of bitcoin seems to be in the right place or at least it's headed towards the right place you know we're recording this episode here late november uh broke out at 17k for the first time really since uh 2017 and it's just been a very very interesting uh time but we're gonna get into some very interesting uh and heady stuff here today we're gonna break down some economics behind crypto. We are joined by Garrick Heileman of Blockchain.com, who is their head researcher, and he's also a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics. So folks, pause this and go get a notepad and a piece of paper because class is in session. Garrick, welcome to Crypto 101, baby. Hey, thanks for
2: having me, guys. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, hopefully a more interesting session than in your the classes your 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 audience remembers from university if they successfully escaped the clutches of academia,
0: (laughs) you know, we've all,
1: we've all blocked that horrible memory out of our minds, except for the good parties at San Diego state.
0: I can assure (laughs) you that the, uh, the crazy thing just to jump right into it about academia is it's broken. Like, why didn't we ever learn how to balance a checkbook? Why didn't we learn about, you know, why, like there was, there's no practical stuff. It seems like Going through academia. I don't know. What do you think about that? How do you think of the future of academia?
2: Yeah, you know, that's a great place to start and one of my favorite topics because, you know, I, I have to, at the start of my lectures, you know, begin with kind of a what is money discussion because this is not taught even in economics 101 classes, let alone high school, where money comes from. Most people, even people working in finance, can't really explain where money comes from and and you know how it's manufactured so to speak a lot of people have this sense okay the fed federal reserve is involved but the vast majority of our money is not minted by the fed or the government in the form of paper and coins the vast majority of our money and most people don't know this is actually lent into existence by banks you know 90% or more in many countries and so i always start a lot of my lectures with that Uh, Because you can't really understand crypto, I think, until you understand where money comes from. Yeah, no,
0: it's super fascinating. In fact, you know, I remember in the early days, maybe five years ago or so, when I was just beginning to learn about crypto and blockchain and how all this stuff comes together. You know, I saw a presentation I learned about fractional reserve banking. And this was a concept, you know, I had gone all the way through college, right? And I had studied all sorts of stuff. I didn't even know that this was a thing. And it's something that I think a lot of people don't really understand. People don't know the history of money. People don't know how all that started. So, you know, after that, me and Pizza Mind, uh, Aaron over here, we actually ended up going on to write a book uh, called Crypto Revolution. We start with like the history of money. And so it's just very interesting. But, you know, I want to talk to you uh, personally, kind of about your journey, because you've got an interesting journey. Blockchain.com is, you know, one of the biggest providers of wallets. Uh, London School of Economics obviously one of the you know the most uh, reputable and acclaimed universities in the world so how did you find your way into the the areas of expertise that you currently are in yeah you know it's funny only in hindsight does my
2: career make any sense whatsoever uh, you know i can thank satoshi nakamoto for actually you know helping me make sense of this tangled path i've taken so I started in um, investment banking, um, working in spe- uh, financial services, doing M and A, you know, kind of you know an- analyst type work. And then I worked in tech. I, I, I'm old enough to have been through the first dot com bubble. I, I co-founded a tech incubator that invested in internet companies, and then the you know a few other things happened. But the financial crisis occurred, and I said I need to understand what's going on with the macro economy. I've always been very interested in econ. Miner did in 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 college and and went to go do the PhD at the LSE, and it was during that time. um, You know, one of my PhD supervisors uh, was Neil Ferguson, uh, who's a a noted uh, monetary historian. Um, It was during that time that I first learned about Bitcoin, kind of on my own. I I saw the story on I think it was Gawker, maybe uh, about the Silk Road in 2011. And at that time, I was studying black market currencies, and I, I just kind of, what is this thing called Bitcoin? Does it fit into my framework uh, that I was developing for how to classify different types of currencies? And I think the thing that really helped me grok Bitcoin much more quickly than folks like Neil, my advisor, who uh, you know I explained this to a number of times and didn't quite get on board with it, uh, but a lot of other economists famously also were very dismissive, is I had that tech background. Uh, from Silicon Valley. And I saw this for more than just kind of gold standard 2.0. It was a lot more. There's a lot more to crypto and Bitcoin than just, uh, oh, we're going back in time and and trying to reinvent the gold standard with a digital kind of like fig leaf. Uh, so that tech training, I think, uh, was really helpful for me kind of wrapping my heads around it earlier than a lot of my economics colleagues and and makes me a little different than I think a lot of other, other, you know, academic economists who, many of which, surprisingly, are not very tech savvy, sadly.
1: That makes a lot of sense. So as you're studying economics, did you fall under any particular school of thought, either the Keynesian economics or the Hayek economics, or do you have your own lens that you formulated? And would you mind describing what those terms are?
2: Yeah. So, yeah, they, they they can kind of be compared to religions in some ways. And I think One of the, the, the incredible, I think stories that come out of the financial crisis, I think that illustrates this point well is when the Queen of England came to the London School of Economics after the financial crisis, after the Lehman bankruptcy, and all the economists, you know, some of the best economists in the world were there. And she asked them directly, how come none of you saw this coming? You know, you guys were supposed to be the smartest, you know, uh, economists in the world. And economists famously did not have very real world practical expertise to help assess something like the the 2008 crisis. And, um, you know, the type of research that I was very inspired by was the work of folks like Carmen Reinhart and, and Ken Rogoff and their great magisterial 2010 book. Uh, this time is different. It's the only, to my knowledge, best selling academic economic history book. So I went into the LSE's economic history program intentionally. They actually are one of the few schools, I think with the University of Glasgow, if I'm not mistaken, one of only two schools that actually has an economic history department uh, because that subject has been so deprioritized. That empirical work that economic historians are very famous for has been deprioritized by academic journals and, and departments at the top universities that favor theory and, you know, elegant mathematics, and and frankly, uh, you know, the the type of work that often is accused of having a lot of physics envy um, that doesn't have any use, frankly, in in the real world. Um, and, and, And I think the 2008 crisis kind of laid bare just how inadequate macroeconomic models were for helping us understand what's actually happening, whereas history and the empirical work of folks like Carmen and Ken and, and Neil and others, I think, has actually um, been quite useful.
0: So we, a lot of us remember back in 28, uh, 2008 and 2009 when the mortgage industry kind of blew up. And that was kind of the maybe the catalyst to everything shutting down. But my question isn't about like what went wrong. My question is more about what like, materially changed when the like, what changed after that? Where are we coming out of that? Was it, you know, I know that we had more money printed and stuff like that. But you know, what really changed after the financial crisis? Yeah, I think it's
2: a great question. And I think we're still trying to figure that out, you know, in, in detail. I think uh, some things that changed have been undone. Some of the Dodd Frank, you know, rules were kind of wound back. Uh, the Volcker rule was softened. So you what, saw what things. were those changed. rules. So they were rules designed to try to build in additional safeguards, uh, to present systemic collapse. The Volcker rule specifically was about preventing banks from trading, uh, aggressively, uh, and putting their institutions, these, these too big to fail institutions at risk. One thing that did not change is too big to fail. We're too bigger to fail. Uh, banks have gotten bigger. And again, you know, they're, maybe not as you know freewheeling as they once were. Capital ratios are you know, improved uh, to some degree, for example, that may be a positive. That's certainly some, you know, something that you know, professors like Natamadi at Stanford really advocated aggressively for. And we've seen some progress on that. But again, what attracted me to crypto and blockchain technology was this idea that you know, regulatory changes post-crisis could be undone. Uh, cultural and social changes, like, you know, we saw with things like Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street, trying to change kind of the political climate. Those evaporated, but infrastructure changes, actual changes to the, to the software, the DNA of the financial system, which blockchain in my mind represented a possibility around that sounded like something that could be more long lasting and more permanent and was part of the reason I was so interested in this and wrote about it. Started writing publicly about it in 2013.
0: I, I think that you you actually ended up exactly where I wanted you to end up uh, because at the you know in 2008 you know Bitcoin was just a white paper and now we have kind of like a safety raft almost and, and we've seen empires rise and fall throughout history um, but really you know what happens when em- an empire falls and do you think that you know America is on the brink of an empire failing? Wow. We're, we're, we're going into some (laughs) light,
2: light subjects here, aren't we? Well, okay. I think a lot of uh, how, how a question like that can be answered depends upon the speed or rate of change and whether something happens suddenly, which can be, I think sometimes more dangerous than if something happens over a longer stretch of time. And one of the things that has concerned me about the amazing, you know, uh, Amazingness, for, for lack of a better word, of crypto is it's so compelling that I worry about too speedy a transition to a blockchain-based or crypto financial system. If that happened too quickly, you know, could that trigger the mother of all financial crises? And um, you know, I, I I I always get a lot more nervous personally about um, the price of crypto going up too quickly than when it goes down fast um, because. You know, you worry about the 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 the, the, this idea that somehow this could destabilize the whole world um, if there was a huge run on the traditional financial system that happened like that. Now, that may be a really exciting possibility for many folks, and I want to rain on anyone's parade by expressing that view. But um, I think slow and steady has a much greater chance of kind of winning the race if you do believe in kind of substituting in new financial plumbing via blockchain technology with the existing plumbing than something that's so rapid that um invites a a very major backlash, not just by regulators, but by everyday folks in the street who um just aren't equipped to kind of get on this life raft. Um there's, you know, a lot of awareness of Bitcoin. Over 80% of people know about it, but you know, we think maybe 5% of people own it roughly. Um, You know, it's it's a small, small segment of society that has kind of joined this quote unquote life raft uh, today.
1: From your vantage point, is the current financial system in the trouble it's in because because it was a bad system from the beginning, or it's because people aren't following the rules and no one's enforcing the checks and balances?
2: Yeah, I think it's too simplistic to say it's a bad system and and and, and, and I think you see evidence that many parts of it have merit in how they're being replicated in the crypto, Alternative financial system. If you look at, for example, the crypto lending space, which blockchain.com is very active in, uh, you know, you see, you know, borrowing and lending uh occurring. And and uh, you know, is, is that a bad thing? Um, you know, it, it it can be, you know, it certainly can can have negative outcomes and consequences, but it doesn't always have to be a bad thing. I mean, the the whole idea behind lending is it allows us to bring the future forward into the present. And, and that could be a nice thing for accelerating, you know, growth, income, et cetera. Certainly there has been a huge violation of rules. Uh, you know, I I for years in my lectures would use the John Corzine uh, example of MF Global. This is the former head of Goldman Sachs, former governor of New Jersey, senator, you know, about as um, distinguished a uh, uh, a member of the elite as you can you can get who, in essence, basically, unbeknownst to MF Global's customers, took their money and gambled on European sovereign debt and, and blew up MF Global. And, and that was a violation of rules that could happen because of the lack of transparency that MF Global's customers had and regulators had into MF Global. So I think one of the promises of blockchain technology also is the ability to give customers, regulators regulators, more visibility. In the financial system so that it's just not even possible to violate the rules in the way that John Corzine did
0: at MF Global. I love it. Uh, the, the next kind of topic I want to spend a little bit of time on is debt. And a lot of people have a negative connotation around debt. Debt's bad, don't get debt, all that stuff. But the fact is that, you know, the world wouldn't be where it is without debt, without mortgaging away the future, without having financing options available and stuff like that. Um, but it, you know, in, in the Bitcoin cryptocurrency world, we say that these assets are debtless. So there seems to be some type of discrepancy um, here where we could like, is a future possible without debt and, and financing? And, and can you kind of talk a little bit about your views there? On an, you know, kind I of an economy that, that's been built on debt to an economy that is looking at maybe no debt, right?
2: So, I mean, we have crypto debt. There's debt in the crypto space, and March was a very kind of scary time, I think, for a lot of people because of how much leverage and debt had built up uh, and continues today to to exist in the crypto economy. Uh, you know, when you get over leveraged, it's that you can have the wily e. coyote moment. Um, where you're out off the cliff and, you know, you may not even know it for a moment, and then all of a sudden the bottom drops out. That's the problem with leverage, right? And I've seen this through the years. People get really aggressive and excited during moments like this. They start borrowing on the credit card. They start mortgaging their house even, um, you know, and going all in because, boy, boy, I just know Bitcoin's going to hit a new all-time high. I'm 100% sure of it. How could it not? And, and maybe it even does, but can you get out, you know, <laughs> you know, and time if, 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 that's your strategy, you know, exchanges fail, this, this space is still very, you know, new and immature. We still have, I mean, I, I hate to, I don't want to bash on a competitor, um, but they're, you know, you know, been a hugely positive influence in my view for, for crypto adoption. So I'll, I'll sing their praises first, before I lament the fact that Coinbase still in 2020, Crashes. It went down yesterday. Case. I mean, this has been going on for how many years? And and it's traditionally been a bullish indicator. Like, oh, Coinbase is crashing. <laughs> they're the they're the primary on ramp for for new money, new retail. That's that's a great sign. But I mean, come on. I mean, we. You know, I, I don't think that's anything for the industry to celebrate. You know, um, or feel good about that. You know, are you know arguably the flagship, um, you know, company in the space that that might IPO and bring a whole new um, cohort of Wall Street institutional retail, traditional money on board to crypto is still breaking down, you know, and it's so, so I guess the point I'm trying to make is, is uh, you know, it's still, you know, something where you need to be careful and I guess to bring it back to debt, um, you know, I, again, I think debt isn't inherently a bad thing. You know, um, David Graber passed away recently, wrote a, a brilliant kind of a book on this subject you know, debt predates money, arguably, and and you know, and and how we form human relations, and you know, it's a complicated subject. But I think that I don't think it's going away. Number one, and number two, I think it can be used responsibly in a constructive way. Uh, the trick is when people get over exuberant, borrowing Alan Greenspan's term, and and just you know over leverage. So I think debt will continue to be a part of the crypto economy and the global economy.
1: Speaking of looking at the future of the global economy, I'm starting to see a phrase pop up over and over again at different places, whether it's from American politicians all the way up to the website of the international monetary fund. It's talking about the great reset. Have you heard of this? And if so, what have you heard that this might actually be?
2: So I don't know that I'm familiar with, um, you know, the use of that term by IMF officials, um, I have you? You might be able to help me out here. I have have notable IMF officials like Christine Lagarde and others actually made that term? In,
1: I haven't, got a, direct, I haven't <laughs> got a direct quote from them. In this speech, but there's text on the website that mentions uh, the Great Reset is one of their um, like ten year objectives or something like that.
2: Yeah, I would need to look at that to understand what the IMF is referring to there, because I think they would be very cautious knowing folks at the IMF about using such a term without really clearly uh, explaining what they meant. Um,
1: but right. But- that, that's the thing. There's no definition as to what this is. It's just they're kind of floating this out here is like this weird alpha coming soon to a theater near you before we seize it. I don't know what it is. So yeah, I saw a I, commercial
0: on it the other day. I, I don't and I was feel
1: like- so bad if about not knowing about it, if you don't know about it.
2: <laughs> so I, I think, you know, you know, you'll hear this term often mentioned around debt sustainability and, uh, you, know, you know, the IMF was, was, I think, correct in calling out the Europeans, for example, a number of years ago that the Greek debt was unsustainable. You know, you need to reset that, that debt. You know, this is ridiculous, you know, that you can't have an honest conversation with yourselves and, and acknowledge that Greece is never going to, you know, pay this off, you know, in full and, and you need to reset it. So, so that could mean something around debt sustainability. Certainly, it can mean something more dramatic than that for the global economy, the global monetary system. You know, I think a term like that is potentially quite subversive and and uh, I would be surprised if it gets widely used by you know current policymakers because of its potential connotations for a radical disruption of of the status quo. A lot of what policymakers want to do is maintain the status quo, right? That's why right. the Federal Reserve is not anxious to embrace a digital dollar. They're kind of being dragged along. Um, the status quo is working just fine for the Federal Reserve with the U.S. Mm-hmm. dollar so dominant and, uh, you know, everything in orbit around the Fed and, and the U.S. and New York and the U.S. financial system. But, you know, China and other things are conspiring to kind of force the Fed to, to have to kind of upgrade, so to speak, To a digital dollar. Uh, And and, um, part of the concern may be that that China risks resetting the global monetary landscape um, and replacing the dollar in places like Africa as the primary trade currency uh, and reserve currency.
1: Interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, Greece in particular? You mentioned that for a second. How would Greece reset their debt? Do they have to just wipe out their currency and start with a brand new one or how does that even work?
2: Yeah, so that's a that's a great question, and this is gets into kind of what I was working on during my PhD, uh, where I was um, looking at debt sustainability specifically, and thinking through, you know, how do you sustain a debt? Um, you know, the the way that uh, people prefer to to get out of a debt problem, like Greece's problem, is to grow their way out of it. And hence, they borrow money from the IMF, try to like kickstart growth. Um, but, uh, when you reset debt, um, typically I think what you're talking about is some kind of, um, default in essence, it goes by other names in, in the Greek crisis specifically, it was kind of laughable how many different terms they came up with to avoid having to use the word default. We're going to reprofile Greek debt. We're going to, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to, there was just a restructure. restructure. Yeah. I I actually have this in my paper because it was just like comical how many different terms, because if you use the word default that can trigger, you know, debt covenants and, and so on. So they had to actually stay away from that language, interestingly, but really it involves, I think in essence, some kind of like, you know, writing down officially the nominal amount of debt that is owed. Um, that's that's uh, and that just was not politically palatable in Europe. Um, still today, even really, because you know, sovereign debt is supposed to be a zero-risk asset. It's something you can pledge to the ECB. You know, is, is a risk-free you know collateral, and you know, as soon as it, it's not, then that whole that whole myth, you know, the emperor's new clothes,
0: is exposed, right? Um, Can't can't go there. (laughs) Yeah, he has no clothes at that point. (laughs) Interesting. And this is one that we didn't really talk about in the outline that we sent over. But what you're talking about of like devaluing the nominal uh, value of debt is that kind of what's going on right now between America and China. They're kind of both in a race to devalue their currency so that they could devalue their debts that they owe one another. It's almost like a race to who could who could get to the bottom first.
2: Yeah, it's it's a great great question, and uh, you know we know that the U.S. is very pro weakening the U.S. dollar. At least you know the Trump administration certainly has been, uh, and and that helps make U.S. exports more competitive. Um, you know makes Chinese you know exports less competitive, and and. Uh...
3: Hey guys, Tivo here to tell you about the UFi Video Lock, a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell all in one. What I love about this product it is it's truly all-in-one with the three-in-one. You don't have to go out and buy multiple parts. It's all in this package with the Ufi Video Lock. So if you're interested in learning more, go on Amazon and search Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Ufi Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door.
4: This is the story of the one. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try.
2: Um, You know, there's, I think it's, it's interesting to kind of mention uh, a quote from a central banker who will go nameless uh, talking about this kind of like, you know, kind of of race around devaluing currencies. You know, uh, a central banker one time told me that, you know, basically everything will be fine. As long as we central bankers all hold hands and jump off the cliff together. And so what, what he meant by that basically is, is is look, you know, there's nowhere to run, there's nowhere to hide. If you know the Europeans, the Americans, you know, the you know, the Japanese central bank are all moving in unison and coordinating. And that's what's changed in the last decade, I think, is is really, you know, gold's been there for centuries, you know, millennia, as an alternative. But it's, it's, you know, we wrote a research report in June, kind of comparing Bitcoin and gold. You know, Bitcoin offers a really compelling alternative to gold in a number of ways, including its potential use as a currency, um, which gold really is difficult to use as a currency. Um, and, and now you do have somewhere to run, somewhere to hide that could serve as a check on, you know, this kind of race to the bottom, uh, you know, and, and may help police, you know that kind of race to a bottom, so to speak, and I think that's a really interesting kind of development that crypto offers. What that means, I think, is going to be quite interesting, right? Like, like in some ways, Bitcoin is like, you know, imagine you're in a country that is at risk of dollarizing. You know, let's take uh, Costa Rica for example. Fifty percent of all uh, transactions are in the U.S. dollars in Costa Rica. Um, you as a central banker of Costa Rica are kind of in this race to compete against the U.S. dollar and the risk of the dollar overwhelming your your local currency. You know, Bitcoin's kind of that that dollar, you know, in some ways policing the U.S. dollar and also other currencies uh, and nations around the world that have managed to keep U.S. dollars out uh, as kind of the, the
0: alternative um, currency. So, so, yeah, um, I, I think that's there. a real. Yeah, that's a really interesting point about how like, you know, the US dollar typically polices the, you know, all the other different currencies because it's so strong. And when it gets in there, you could actually start to exploit some of the weaknesses that are in that sovereign, the other country sovereign currency. But now, either with capital controls and stuff, the US dollar is not allowed in, but it's very hard to have capital controls around Bitcoin. So Bitcoin actually becomes the police for all of these weak currencies. And, uh, you know, you see, you know, with Bitcoin priced in Turkish lira way above all-time high priced in the Lebanese dollars, way above all-time high. So you, all we're slowly gonna start to see, you know, it just taking out all the all-time highs. But I want to transition from that and I want to go specifically into what you are researching right now at blockchain.com. You know, as the head of research, what does your day look like? What sorts of problems are you tasked with being solved? Um, and, and maybe even share some fun stories or some some practical uh, applications of how how you guys have uh, impacted the industry. I'm really curious. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, let me just briefly about blockchain.com. Founded in 2011,
2: so we're one of the old uh, old companies in the space, one of the oldest. Um, well-known great. It's a great domain name. We started off as blockchain.info well-known for our, our explorer and became blockchain.com. Um, both have been great for search engine optimization traffic, you know, um, and, and, and so a lot of people discover crypto through the blockchain website. Um, so there's kind of a special responsibility that I think the company feels to educating and, and hence why someone like me is hired, you know, to kind of help provide reliable information data to people who are new to the space. Um, You know, a non-custodial wallet, that's our other flagship product uh, that, you know, is really, I think, important because it's true to kind of the original kind of crypto ethos, which we move further and further away from, I think, uh, with more people not holding their own private keys, uh, more people trusting exchanges. We have our own exchange. We think that's, you know... Going to be the right product for a lot of people who aren't comfortable managing their private key. There is a lot of responsibility. You want the ultimate in security and safety, you know, hold your private keys, but you also get the ultimate responsibility. You lose those, we can't recover your funds for you. We can't reset your your private key. It's gone, you know. And and so that's not something a lot of people uh, want to take on at least yet. But we 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 try to you know kind of get people more comfortable with that and and really believe in that product. Um, you know, so yeah, just trying to think back to, you know, your question about what I spend my time on. You know, at some point I'm going to want a medal uh, from somebody for for all the hours I've spent on the phone talking to media uh, through the years explaining <laughs> cryptocurrency. I've been I I got invited after the Cy- Cypriots decided to tax deposits um, in in spring 2013 for the first time on television to explain Bitcoin. Sky News had me on. I've been fielding a lot of media requests since then. I, I love it. Um, the media- you great at it. <laughs> most, most people don't come to the LSE or Cambridge to learn about anything. They learn about new things through the media. So the media has huge leverage, uh, huge reach for educating people. And so I get way more leverage by talking to the media as an educator than I do in the classroom. So it's really That's worth- terrifying. Well, it's it's it is what it is, and and uh, you know I, I I I've really been impressed in general with you know I, I think two of the unsung heroes uh, in the story of crypto are are media uh, who have really taken the time to get to know this space. Not every not all of them have, right? I mean, we can all think of you know folks who've gotten this wrong, but but also um, you know I don't want to get too on off on another tangent, but I think regulators deserve some credit as well in many cases, not all, but in many cases, I think they've created space for cryptocurrency to grow uh, in a way that uh, wasn't obvious to many people that they would do that. Um, But anyway, spending time with regulators and media is something I spend a lot of time doing in terms of current research topics. um, You know, I'm really thinking a lot these days, um, uh, uh, you know, I, I published some stuff recently on DeFi, but, I'm really digging back into kind of, uh, voting technology, uh, Mm. with this election. Uh, I'm really getting a lot of, um, kind of pips from folks in, in the political establishment who are wondering if we can do better. Uh, and there might be something to looking at digital identity, looking at, you know, some kind of blockchain based voting system. This has been a technology, uh, that's, you know, blockchain and voting has been kind of dismissed. MIT just. You know, again, kind of dumped on it uh, the other day. But I think a lot of people, correctly in my view, see it as inevitable that we're going to have more electronic voting in one way, shape, or form, and we'll solve the security and usability challenges. Um, And blockchain has a lot to offer, potentially, in terms of its principles and its, you know, is an inspiration for, I want to be able to audit my own vote. I want more transparency on the results. I want more reliability. I want a single source of truth. You know that I can trust, a ledger accounting for what just happened that you know you know, and we wrote about this in our recent monthly outlook, even if you don't go and embrace blockchain for voting, the principles behind blockchain certainly can serve as inspiration, I think, for a better voting technology system
0: man i could not agree more with that statement that is that is really cool i just remember watching uh this is like total side tangent watching house of cards back when it was still on and they started talking about like blockchain based voting and like one of the guys got killed for talking about it because it's like (laughs) that's exactly what the government doesn't want they don't want to give you full transparency and auditability and you know everybody has an equal say and stuff uh but it's it's totally necessary so i gotta go read uh the, the papers you've been writing on that that's gonna be really interesting Um, First money, uh, then identity and voting and supply chain. And then the whole world is going to be on blockchain here pretty soon.
1: (laughs) Hopefully, anyway. Um, One of the things I wanted to ask you about, Garrick, since you're doing a lot of research in crypto, we call the incentivization system of each network tokenomics. It's really important, but it's often misunderstood even by the developers, just how important it is. Can you give us an example of a project that has good tokenomics and why it makes it good versus a project that has maybe not so good tokenomics and why <laughs> they're failing?
2: Yeah, that, that's, uh, you know, so, you know, one of the, I think, most interesting things I learned early on when I started going deeper and deeper into cryptocurrency, and it was at the financial cryptography and data security conferences that have been going for 20 plus years. Highly recommend. Uh, that even if you can't make it to these, uh, conferences, people look up the research, uh, of the financial cryptography and data security conferences. It's one of the best kept conference secrets in the world. Only a few hundred people go to it each year. But, uh, you know, a lot of, of my intellectual heroes in financial cryptography, um, have done really important presentations there. And, 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 you know, one of the things that, um, Andrew Miller, um, uh pointed out, uh I think at the first FC I went to in 2014 was how uh you know all the technical components of Bitcoin existed 10 years or more prior to the invention of Bitcoin. You know, the you know pr- you know proof of work and in the networking protocols and et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, what made Bitcoin special was What we call tokenomics, the incentives, you know, that, that kind of fashioned all this existing kind of off the shelf tech that Satoshi took and married together with a really, really, as it turns out, strong incentive system that works. And so when you ask me that question, what has the best tokenomics? You know, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of punt and say, I'm going to go with the Lindy effect. I'm going to go with the one that's been around the longest because that's the one that's been most battle tested. And has stood up over time better than anything else so far. Um, you know what? What has bad tokenomics?
0: And, and before you yeah. move on, real before you move on, real quick, <laughs> I know that there's viewers out there that are going to say what you know they're searching on coin market cap for lindy effect right now what he meant he meant bitcoin has the lindy effect which means the longer a technology is in place uh the more likely it is to sustain into the future so do not go search for lindy search for btc <laughs>
1: yeah don't fall for the lindy token scam
0: Yeah, I guarantee <laughs> it's out there guys. I've got a
2: huge, wait we quit i've got a huge bag of lindy tokens quit
0: Quit, you know. Look, I'm a starving <laughs> academic, really at years, So I, I, I was going to finally cash in. But. <laughs> that's great. And then, what's an example of some bad tokenomics?
2: Yeah, that's a trickier question. So obviously, we've had a lot of coins fail, you know. And you've got zombie coins that are out there. You've got things that haven't really died completely, but you know, maybe they're being propped up, you know, and still are on coin market cap with some supposed, you know, fantasy market value. I mean, you know that's what makes like Bitcoin dominance really hard to kind of calculate in some ways accurately is what is the true market value as you get further and further down the leaderboard. I mean, as you do, I think you get into more fictional territory. Um, Absolutely. And, and so dominance is probably higher than, than, you know, a coin market cap or, you know, coin gecko would suggest, you know, but, but I guess, you know, I think I'm going to pick on an asset that actually we support and I'm not going to come out and say they have bad tokenomics, but I think they had a problem, and that's stellar. Um, and and this overhang of tokens that were held by the foundation, um, I think was was problematic um, for a number of reasons. Number one, that was like that kind of like big iceberg kind of you knew that was sitting there <laughs> with with an explicit you know um, you know kind of you know kind of message that hey we're going to distribute these over time. And it was like eighty plus percent for a long, long time. So you know that really undermines kind of the store of value kind of component, which is essential to having a medium of exchange. You know, you can't have a medium of exchange that loses all its value. It's got to kind of balance those two things, right? And then, and then also interestingly, I think created a regulatory problem or, or some regulatory risk because of this concern around you know how centralized something is, right? And and um, and, and is it sufficiently decentralized? That was the term that was used to characterize Ethereum, right? And, and so, you know, again, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say it's bad tokenomics. I think there are some problems that have been revealed through all these different you know experiments we've seen around different token structures. Um, and and uh, you know, we like Stellar. We think Stellar is actually one of the um, you know kind of more interesting you know um, blockchains and platforms out there. Um, you know, and the mission is great, you know, wanting to solve the remittances, cross-border payments issue, which has been a just a huge kind of tax on people who really can't afford to be taxed on sending money back to grandma when they're working overseas, $200 chunks. You know, love that mission. Um, but that structure created problems, I think, that is kind of, and they've tried to address it, of course, by, you know, burning. Um, I think that's that's clear indication they kind of saw the writing on the wall there.
0: Yeah. And in yeah. October, they actually ceased all of their future inflation. I remember reading about. It and I saw a big, you know, green candlestick and then kind of just pitted out. But
2: <laughs> and, and that's the that's the beauty of this whole space is we have all these wonderful live empirical experiments happening, you know, around tokenomics, around governance, you know, which ones are being embraced by the market, which ones are losing favor. You know, is there a room to make adjustments? You know, we've seen, you know, adjustments made. You know, even, you know, you know, things that people thought were inviolable. And you think of the Dow hack on Ethereum, people thought that was the end of Ethereum. Obviously not. Um, <laughs> and and uh, so there's definitely, you know, lots of interesting experiments going on that I think make this a really just amazing place for researchers like myself to study. You know, it's not theoretical. It's being battle tested in the market right now. And, and, you know, we'll see who wins.
1: I think Stellar was a great example uh, for a great project that just needed some help with their tokenomics. Like you mentioned, they did their burn. They also did an airdrop to pretty much anyone who had a key base address to try and further decentralize their network. Um, so they've, they've come up with all kinds of different ideas. And I to think try I remember
0: blockchain.com facilitated some of that airdrop too. That, is that's that- right. We, we actually yeah gave
2: away over 100 million of XLM uh to you know a million plus of our users. It was our first major airdrop and the largest giveaway in the in, in history at that time, period. You know, not just a crypto airdrop giveaway, period. And um, you know, I mean, Coinmetrics and and uh, Antoine over there who used to work at blockchain.com did some interesting analysis around you know what was the impact of that airdrop on on price. And you know it 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 hurt, you know, I mean it, it's <laughs> Yeah, you're, you're you're handing out something to someone who may really be a BTC maximalist or something, and and they're going to convert it instantly, and that's going to put downward pressure on the price, right? I mean, that's right. the one of the takeaways again of this experimentation. But um, uh, you know, we pick on seller and XLM because you know Jed's an
0: extraordinary entrepreneur and technologist. Um, you know, is and uh, not, you I'm you on pick on it because guy. you know it's uh, you know it's not going away. You, you pick on it because it's kind of like. You know, he could take it. <laughs> well,
1: there's no disrespect. Yeah, I just, disrespect had, a, I just to... had a
0: visitor here. <laughs> That's quite um, all right. Little little baby Hilleman over there. <laughs> That's no
1: problem. So before we get too far away, I want to circle back to Bitcoin for just a second. And can you explain why Bitcoin's tokenomics are really good? In contrast to Stellar that had that huge overhanging supply that was controlled by one entity. You know, Bitcoin also did giveaways in its early days. But what is it about Bitcoin's tokenomics that make it so good? Is it the deflationary curve? Uh, what is it?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think we're still trying to figure this out. You know, it's, it's, you know, this experiment is playing out in real time. And some people who have tried to look into the future uh, an economist at the Bank of International Settlements uh, published a paper with the term doomsday in the title describing Bitcoin's tokenomics. So it's a lot of debate. Uh, around you know how good the, the tokenomics are. Uh, in our research, we did a, a blog post uh, titled "Battle Testing Bitcoin" uh, a few months back, where we looked at the having and 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 kind of kind of projected into the future a bit about what the security budget. of of Bitcoin's tokenomics uh, offers. And that's really what fundamentally, I think we are getting at when we talk about in the case of Bitcoin, at least the tokenomics, how secure is the blockchain? Everything depends in the case of Bitcoin on its security. And I would argue pretty much every protocol and and company even in this space, a company like blockchain.com is nothing without security. It's our highest priority. and so, when you think about the tokenomics of Bitcoin, you're thinking about okay, what is what is what are those coins and transaction fees paying for? They're paying for security. And one thing we don't know is how much security Bitcoin needs. You know, the protocol has never been really you know kind of hacked uh, in, in any way, so it's had sufficient security. But has it been overpaying? You know, has it been paying more for that security than than it needs to. Um, you know, and and so when we look into the future, um, you know, you know, if prices remain kind of where they are, I mean, security in my mind uh, of, of the level we have today, even with you know future havings in four years and the next four years and so on, is not a concern for another decade or more. You know, again, if today's security level is sufficient, um, we just don't know what is optimal security or sufficient security for sure other than when you think about it over time and say how much value has been at risk over a given amount of time and how much time has that value been at risk and and the longer more value has been at risk the more confident you can be in the security of the system in the quality of the tokenomic design um, right now you know it's working um, and and again if today's security level is sufficient then I expect it to continue to work for a decade or more. Um, will it continue to work in a hundred years? No one knows for sure. Not even the the the, the top Bitcoin core developers will, will tell you uh, candidly that it's a it's a it's a it's a settled intellectual question that Bitcoin's tokenomics are perfect into perpetuity. You know, for the next
0: decade or, or more, probably fine is our best guess right now. And there's still there still will be. Uh, raging debate. I'm sure there's going to be more forks. I kind of liked what you said earlier about the religiosity of the whole space because you know the Protestant Reformation was a fork from Catholicism, and they have a different canon. So right when we're thinking about like Bitcoin, like all these different intellectual debates on security, you know they're going to be um, contentious, and so that is one of the things that we'll well just have to expect and get get prepared for. Um, but the last question we have for you. Uh, before we move into uh, a, a personal closing question, um, we've been looking at staking rewards lately on uh, some proof of stake coins, and we're wondering kind of what is a good, healthy inflation rate? Just because, you know, we've seen some of these projects, you know, yield farming was a big thing and they were 200% APY, just insane Price would skyrocket. Everybody would be mining it, and then boom, it'd crash, go to zero. We've seen other coins like Tezos or Cosmos take a more conservative approach, much more conservative, six to eight percent a year. Is there a sweet spot, or what's really going on here? Yeah, that is, that is you know, at least a billion dollar question, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's the billion dollar question. That's why we're asking the billion dollar man, right? the, the London yeah, school PhD. Yeah I, yeah, I wish I was the billion dollar man.
2: Not, not even, <laughs> remember, poor starving PhD student when I discovered Bitcoin, right? Um, so, yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, boy, you know, one thing, you know, I like about staking uh, is uh, it, it, you're playing a role in the security of the network. When you, when you kind of put your coins into, you know, the staking system, um, you know, and, and, and so, you know, it's one thing to loan your coins out, you know, and, and, and I think that's, you know, we have a great uh, product, 12% interest rates on our US dollar stable coins, um, but you're not, when you do that, you're not contributing to the security of the system, right? In the same way that you're contributing to it when you stake in many cases, and and uh I think that's really interesting. Uh because, you know, like the risk, of course, you know, with lending your coins out is is, you know, Bitcoin, you know, historically has gone up, I think, something like half a percent a day, you know. And it kind of puts your three or six percent you're earning on those coins, you know, in perspective, right? When you're you're talking about half a percent a day. Yeah, um, that's that's serious. You know, um <laughs> And and so, you know, but if you're staking, I mean, look, if you own a, a staking coin, you know, you're already exposed, you know, and in and to the, you know, so I, I don't know, there's there's some interesting alignment there around yield farming and yield generating that that I think is 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 interesting. Um I don't know as a short answer to your question though, um yeah. what the optimal level is. I think I look, I think, I think, you know, it may be a lot lower than we think because again we talked about how only 5% of the U S population we think owns crypto assets roughly. Um, so, you know, this whole space as it continues to grow is probably going to see appreciation, you know, uh, and, and so you're getting kind of print, you know, appreciation in the, in the principle, you know, how much yield do you really need, you know, to kind of like supplement that possibility to attract. It's a great stakers, point. Stakers. Right. I mean, I, maybe not that much, um, you know, I think I think it's really you know again security is paramount, right? Exchanges have been hacked, wallets have been hacked, um, you know individual users have been hacked. These protocols themselves, the biggest ones, um, Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, really have not been hacked. That is crucial. That's that's what everything rests on, you know, and it's it's critical that they be maintained.
1: One of the most fascinating financial experiments which is really my my favorite way to describe this industry now. Uh, Financial experimental uh, forum, really. Pundi X is this ICO that was in, I think, 2017 or 2018. Uh, People were super excited about it at first. It had a very thriving ecosystem. They had these point-of-service sale things where you could spend all kinds of different cryptocurrencies on them. And then they decided they were going to I don't know if they decided out of nowhere or if it was originally part of the plan, but they inflated their supply like three times. Like at one point, there was like 268 billion tokens and it crashed the price down from a penny to less than one thousandth of a penny. And people were just losing their minds, even though they got airdrops. They did airdrops for two years as they devalued their currency as radically as they possibly could. And then at the end of the airdrops, they start burning tokens with every transaction to burn down the entire inflation over however many years it takes while continuing to do more things to make their ecosystem thriving. They got this really cool blockchain phone now, uh, all kinds of interesting stuff they're doing, but it's potentially – like the best buying opportunity or like dice roll that I've ever seen. Like, I'm not sponsored by them, but I literally, for like a hundred bucks, you could buy like a million tokens. And if this gets anywhere back to where it already was before, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's it's almost laughable, long shot, <laughs> very, very long shot and long tail. I mean, this thing could take if it's around in 10, 15 the years PDX
0: is the perfect example of the euthanasia roller coaster. That's what yeah.
3: that
0: is. <laughs>
1: it, it is. It's going to shake out every week hand that doesn't see the long term vision. But I met the founder of this guy in Singapore. He used to work for Google. He's a brilliant dude who had this 10, 15, 20 year vision. And if he pulls it off, it's going to be absolutely incredible, but it is an experiment that that's all
0: (laughs) on that note. um, We have one final question. This is a question we like to ask everybody who ever comes on the podcast, and it is a pretty simple one, and it's just. If this was the first podcast that anybody was listening to just hearing about crypto for the first time, they say, wow, cool title, London School of Economics, uh, you know, old investment banker, head of research. I want to listen to this. What's the one takeaway? The one takeaway, I think if you're
2: really new, uh, get off zero, you know, and own a little bit of crypto. It, it's something you can intellectualize and research like crazy. Um, but until you actually you know, hold crypto and, and ideally transact it, um, send it, you really can't know it. it. It really does make a big difference. You can all hold the tiniest amount of crypto. Uh, you can get it for free uh, through airdrops and other things in many cases, um, but just try it because it is, I think now clear. Um, I think post two twenty seventeen, 2017, it was made clear, especially that this isn't going away um, this is going to be a part of our financial future one way or another. And, um, you know, it's going to be helpful for, for you to, to kind of get your hands dirty, playing around with crypto in some way, shape or form. Couldn't
0: agree more. It's great, great wisdom uh, from a vet in the industry. Garrick, we couldn't thank you enough for your time. Uh, we thank you so, so, so much for all the work that you're doing uh, and to continue to be a champion. Uh, so without further ado, uh we'll talk to you soon aaron i'll see you later on today
1: (laughs) yes sir thanks thank you
0: have a good day (laughs) later guys
5: introducing wondersuite from bluehost.com the tool that makes wordpress wonderful for everyone